Hello, and welcome to the 29th episode of Pin Count, the podcast where we go deep into the tech. I'm Douglas Shearer, and I'm here with my co-host, Ian Wallace. Hello. Hi. So, um, what have we got this time? We've got some follow-up, um, a little bit of ARM news, obviously, a bit of Intel stuff, and I think our topic for today, um, I can't remember why, but I was thinking about command line apps, I was probably just staring at a terminal, I thought that would make a quite an interesting topic of, and on the lines of our recent sort of pick your favourite sort of uh, topics. Yeah, um, and I'm intrigued by something I spotted in the after show, and I have not clicked the link as it is instructed. <laughs> awesome, yeah, it's good. Okay, so first we've got you said we've got a little bit of ARM server stuff. There's actually quite a lot of stuff here, but that's that's fine because I think this is a really interesting topic area at the moment. There's lots happening. Um, although there's some weird stuff happening, we'll get into that in a minute. Um, so the first thing was one of Cloudflare's engineers posted a blog post about optimizing their image processing algorithms um, using Neon. I don't know how you just got this. Like, so it's like it's like it's SIMD is to Intel CPUs. Neon is to SSE. No, it's ARM. Neon is ARM SIMD, single instruction multiple data. SSE ah, okay, is right, the yeah. Intel version. Right. So I'm getting. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. So the, the guy's name is Vlad Krasnov, um, and basically he runs through um, how he used Neon to speed up one of their image processing algorithms. That is, the service is called Polish. It runs on the edge on their network and makes your images a bit smaller and nicer. Um, but it, really good, pretty long post, but he goes into using both intrinsics, which are a bit messy, and C um, to access um, the SIMD. And um, I think he talks about using... Assembler, that's the one. Yeah, he talks about using this assembler a little bit, um, um, but obviously says that it's, it's, it's a bit harder to use that because you really need to be looking at the sort of CPU documentation. The outcome of this is they ended up making the image processing on ARM 30% faster than the same image processing on some Xeons, which you would assume is optimised already, um, but at 15% of the power usage. Well, that's quite a, yeah, because for them, performance per watt will be everything, right? Yeah, exactly. You're in data centers all over the world. They've probably got weird billing in all the different data centers. You're running lots of machines, like probably thousands or tens of thousands of machines. Like that performance per watt's really going to, you know, hit, uh, um, be really good for them. They're taking a JPEG and making an optimized JPEG. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. I think yeah, we talked about this before. I recognize some of these uh, images, test images, maybe. So you got looks like you got a few ARM things here. Why why have you put a uh, a thing about Snappy Cam in here. Yeah, so Snappy Cam, um, it was like a really high frame rate um, burst mode for iPhone cameras, and they used Neon um, to be able to get 20 frames per second on an iPhone 5, and had a really good blog post about it, but obviously Snappy Labs has gone bust, or they were bought by someone else or something, and the website's disappeared, and I tried to find it on the Internet Archive, but it didn't have any luck. I'm going to see if I can find it again, because it, it was really, really interesting, they had this sort of similar write-up. Yeah, as you say, to get uh, this was to get high resolution video, wasn't it? I think it was more burst mode than video. Okay, yeah, it was like you know, um, what do they call it now? Like slow mo, that sort of thing. What is it, slow mo? No, I'm sure it was burst mode. I mean, I suppose that's Snappy Cam. That's where it comes from. Yeah, Snappy Cam Pro Pro claims it can produce high quality eight megapixel images shooting at twenty full sensor pictures per second on an iPhone five, and significant speed improvements on older models and other iOS devices. So yeah, it was just. Yeah, high high speed bursts before Apple offered it as a feature. Okay, so like basically what you're saying here is this just in writing low level code can be faster. Although that is yeah, actually quite unusual these days that you can um, beat a, a compiler. 
Yeah, I think it is unusual, and I think Cloudflare is like the perfect example. Like they have engineers that are doing just them because it does save them money. Yeah, and in, in, on an ARM CPU, maybe the optimizations aren't in the compilers, or the optimizations aren't quite so strong. So maybe you know, hand rolling some um, intrinsics um, in your code is the way to go. Yeah, well, I mean, to exploit these SIMD instructions, so that's single instruction, multiple data, it's where you pass in a whole bunch of data and do the same thing to it, basically. And some more ARM stuff, you've got more ARM server stuff here. I mean, I kind of feel like this is just a continuing follow-up from us talking about big ARM machines. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so this is uh, an Antec had a review of the uh, Cavium Thunder X2 um, server CPUs, which are the same ones that Cloudflare are using. They're pretty much the only only player in the game at the moment and it, they've got a bunch of benchmarks on various things the benchmarks are a bit weirdly chosen they've got like just your standard sort of um, spec CPU um, um, synthetic benchmarks from Java performance big data, there's no like web or database stuff and it's kind of difficult to draw conclusions from the numbers it is sort of competitive with Intel CPUs in some areas, it isn't in others there's a big power savings, it just depends on your workload, I'd, I think the benchmarks are a bit weird here, I wonder if there's more coming in the future. I wonder if it's just because it's, it's too different, if you see what I mean, like the things that they're aiming for, like Xeons are all about or mostly all about getting high performance and then the performance per watt is derived from the extreme performance, whereas this is yeah way more of a balanced approach yeah, I mean, like, like two two of these in a single machine is like two forty or two of the ARM CPUs is two forty eight core system on a chip. So you know, it's, it's ninety six cores in a little box that only consumes like you know less than two hundred watts kind of thing. So they, it's the parallelism that's getting you the sort of performance per watt there, rather than as you say the sort of brute force of the Intel approach. Mm. And then you got a link here about um, Homebrew supporting ARM CPUs on Linux. Who on earth is using Homebrew to manage their packages <laughs> on Linux? So there is a um, the, the 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 guy who maintains it called uh, Sean Jackman. He's a bioinformatics PhD student. He he maintains a uh, Linux Brew, which is like a fork or a sister of Homebrew for Mac. But um, Homebrew for Mac's like a um, command line utility that lets you install Unix utilities really easily and manage them and all. Yeah, that which is why I think why why do you need a fork of this for Linux? Yeah, I think at some point we should discuss things like um, Arch Linux, which is kind of the same deal. But anyway. Um, so I I had a commit I made a commit to homebrew like a week ago, two weeks ago for something really simple and while I was looking through the commits I spotted this and he's got a commit in to make homebrew, like not Linux brew, but homebrew know about ARM CPUs and I thought oh, that was interesting. quite interesting. That is quite interesting, yeah. Like I, I, part part of me wonders, does he know something that we don't know, or how is he using this? Because it seems that you could only really use it on Linux, so yeah, I don't know. That's that's weird. Is there any other? No, I had a search of the the code base, and this was the only thing. It's literally just telling the. This is compiler flag stuff. Yeah, so it, it's telling the hardware detection part of Homebrew, so, so it knows what to set the compiler to. It's telling that that ARM exists and what to do with it, what the right flags to give the compiler are. It appears. Da, 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 da. Oh yeah, only in a few places. Oh wait, but Homebrew has some Linux stuff in it. Yeah, so like like I said, Linux Brew is basically a fork of Homebrew. Right, no, but, but Homebrew then... has some Linux, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I mean, it could be nothing, but I, I just saw it in passing when I was looking at other stuff. So the last thing is, after all this excitement about ARM CPUs, there was an article in Bloomberg at the beginning of the month um, which was saying that 
Qualcomm are looking to either exit or sell or exit the server arm CPU business and perhaps sell the business unit to someone. Okay. Which, considering all the excitement around it just now, is quite interesting. I wonder if they had a few big buyers and then someone pulled out or... Yeah. The article's pretty sparse and I've not seen any news about it since. I've not really looked, but this was like big news when it came out. Were they were they doing much in server tips in the first place? I don't think so. I mean, it's them that makes that Cavium Thunder X2 that everyone's been using. Yeah. That doesn't sound right. Should Cavium make it? I mean, who fabs it? Oh, no, it's Cavium that make no, it. Oh, Cavium yeah, okay. was Broadcom's. Yeah, so Cavium is a separate entity. Hmm. But like, it's interesting that Qualcomm are saying they're pulling out, though. Like, Qualcomm are surely one of the bigger players. Yeah, or they're focusing on... Yeah, interesting. Yeah, well, interesting, but not really anything of substance yet. Yeah, yeah, nothing of substance. As I say, that's the sort of weird thing. 10 nanometer Intel CPUs. Which are yeah, so these, thing, these things actually exist, canonly. Ah, uh, not coffee-like, but they're still 8-somethings. They're still 8-somethings, so there's... there's yeah, there's like three different models. There's Canon Lake, Coffee Lake, and something else, and they're all Series 8 <sighs> Intel CPUs. This is, this is weird. It's a 15-watt part with a base, only two cores, a base of 2.2 and a turbo of 3.2. This is not highly. This is, oh yeah, it's an i3, of course. It's mobile. Ah, it's a low-power i3. That's unusual. Yeah, so you can buy this in like one Lenovo laptop right now, as far as I know. Someone Low-end Ultrabook. Yeah, low-end Ultrabook, yeah. It's interesting, but this, this oh. seems to be the first part oh. of the production. Just read the specs. 15.6 inch, but a 1366 by 766 display with a TN panel. Oh, dear me. <laughs> Spinning hard drive. Well, this is not interesting. No one that listens to this cares about anything this low end. Yeah, but like, isn't, isn't, that's not what it's interesting. It's interesting that they've got this 10 nanometer CPU out there. Like, yeah, but what, why is the first one like a total donkey? Like, I wonder if it's, I wonder if it's a yield situation. All right, yeah. I wonder if the yield's so bad. This is the only part they can reliably reliably get. It is a hyper threading uh, i3, which is interesting. Two cores, four threads. But see, you start off trying to make like i7s or yeah, an i7 or an i5, and this they're probably the same. What do you call it? Like um, silicon wafer, you know. And then you're you're bending them, and then you're choosing whether they become an i5 with no hyper threading, or some of them do have hyper threading. Now it's a bit confusing. Or an i3 with hyper threading and fewer cores. And this is like the the bottom of the tree. So maybe by the time your your yield's terrible, you get enough of these for to have something useful to sell. Yeah, because it's got some interesting stuff. Like it can take up to 32 gig of RAM. It's got 16 PCIe lanes, etc., etc. It's all quite weird in i3. Yeah, and I mean, it also has the LPDDR4 support, which you know, I don't think is in Coffee Lake CPUs. Ooh, ooh, I'm going to have to check that now. Because that's why lots of the Macs and such like only have 16 gig. Uh, no, that's because they support both. They support LPDDR3 and DDR4. Oh, LPDDR4, sorry. Yes, LP. Yeah, that's the important one. Ah, okay, hang on. Yeah, you're right. Okay, because I'm, lo- I'm looking up our... Um, i7-8650U, because I've, I've got one on a laptop. That's the quad-core uh, low-TDP mobile parts that are M. And they are LPDDR3 or DDR4, not LP. Yeah, 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 that's that's the way around it is. Yeah. Ah, so interesting. So LPDDR4 is like, they've been promising it for a while. I mean, they keep knocking back the, the deadlines for all these different... Um, processor families but this is the sort of thing people have been waiting for for a long time because this lets you have the next step and like low power laptops going up to 32 gig of RAM yeah that's interesting actually that, that is probably the most interesting thing about this is the LPDDR4 support hmm 
Yeah, so we'll see. I mean, we'll see if they release any more. There was no fanfare around this at all. It literally, this Lenovo laptop, will link just snuck out. It just appeared, and then Intel hadn't even put the proper arc page up yet. Right. The arc page changed over the next like two weeks as they'd sort of remembered the specs of the CPU. That's very interesting. The LPDDR is interesting. Yeah, because I mean, yeah, you like to use Macs, and well, I like to use Macs, but don't. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm, I've got a, my XPS 8370 I've got recently has been very impressive like it, it does make the 30 inch MacBook Pros look old and busted by comparison yeah. like I've been getting I've been using it on and off this weekend and getting stupid battery life not even thinking about charging it 4 cores turbos up to over 4 gig it's a really impressive bit of kit yeah. Um, okay, so this next one, I think I put this link in or I certainly you put this one in yep. I just thought it was an interesting data point it's a bit old now we've not According to the page is still there, though, interesting. The page is still there. So this is Facebook um, hiring an ASIC and FPGA design engineer. So this is Facebook building chips specifically for, well, deep learning, AI, which is um, interesting, I guess. Yep. Um, this Facebook wanting to build their own chips, um, I guess, because, well, they are a big enough customer to have stuff made just for them, so why not make their own things? Yeah. And... Specifically, they're focused on AI, so that I think is very, very interesting. There's starting to be so much competition in the space in terms of other companies producing neural net hardware to compete with NVIDIA. Like uh, the AMD cards are starting to get competitive, and this dedicated hardware sort of coming on online soon, sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I suppose like Facebook aren't going to be selling this to other people, so it, it's. But Facebook are also big enough that they could benefit from something like this, like you know, maybe they can have one FPGA instead of two um, GPUs or something like that. There's some. It's, I mean, it all comes down to power again. They're probably saving power somewhere and making things run faster. So, you know, mm. big company. And then related to this, you've put in the link that um, you can buy Intel Xeon Golds with integrated FPGAs now. Yeah, like on the are they on the die or on the package? They're on the package, I think. Certainly on the package. Um, yeah, high bandwidth to them, one hundred and sixty gigabits a second. Yeah, this is an interesting thing. So, what's their stated use case? So uh, this is so we talked about this or briefly we mentioned this in episode eighteen. There was a Mark Bohr who's like Intel's head of architecture or something interview, and he was saying that the thing the thing he was most sort of keen to mention or keep talking about was they they had this way of putting like. What would you call it? Like heterogeneous um, uh, lithographs on the same package, so they could have like the the Xeon CPU itself is maybe going to be fourteen nanometers, but the FPGA maybe like twenty nanometers, and they can stick them in the same package. And this we said at the time we think FPGAs are coming beside the Xeon or something, and this is it happening. There's actually not much information about this at all. Like this Anantech page has everything we know about this CPU just now. Um, they announced it. At, like some conference or something. I can't. I can't see it. Um, yeah. Okay. But but they, they had one slide that they showed during their presentation, and then there's just this information here. Um, and I guess it's just it's the faster interconnect is the win, but it's just two PCI 3.0 AX connectors. It's not hugely fast. But it's close. This close. Might help. Yeah. But um. Hmm. Very interesting. Interesting. That's going to be used for some niche nonsense for sure. Yeah, so I think it's one of those things that there's not much information about it just now, just because they've probably got very few of them. They've already got partners that are either buying up what's there or until are giving them what's there, and then we'll hear more about it later on. Okay. Um, so should we pile into our main topic now? That's, that's some pretty yeah. pretty serious pinpoint core news there on CPUs. <laughs> um, CPUs and FPGAs all over the place. Didn't mention anything on GPUs, but there's not a lot been going on there. 
nothing. Um, they're all dead expensive, cryptocurrencies, etc. <laughs> um, all right, so command line utilities. How do you want to take this? Do you want to do one a piece, like alternate? Yeah, let's do one a piece. I mean, we have got some that are both the same, man. Um, yeah, your list has gone a bit mental towards the end, but that's fine. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> for starters, what do we count as a command line utility? I, I don't know. I mean, I started off like listing actual, like you know, like a thing you can type in, but then it occurred to me actually, it's almost like it's useful to talk about sort of like tips and stuff that's just in a shell yeah you know because you've got stuff that's just like yeah literally like commands in a shell okay let's standard features i'm gonna say i'm gonna say command line utils are anything that you classify as like a utility that you type in a shell no matter how it's implemented implementation detail whether it's provided by the shell or an application or whatever i mean even if it's provided by the shell all that is is a nearly always all that is is a especially in the Unix system, a separate application somewhere. Yeah. A separate process anyway, but not always. So yeah, okay, well, do, you want to, do you want to kick off? Okay, so first I'm going to go with htop. Um, htop is... Most people use the top command. It shows you your CPU usage, what processes are running. You can do so you can sort the columns, you know, with CPU usage and memory and, you know, you know number of, like, file handles open, that sort of thing. Htop is a, a nice coloured version of it. I was going to say, what, what's good about Htop? Yeah, it's the colours. <laughs> yeah, and if you've got lots of cores, that looks awesome because it shows you all the cores independently at the top. Um, I just find it's a lot nicer to use. It's a lot, if you're looking for something quickly... The colouring is actually very yeah, helpful. and it's in cursor space, so you can scroll around with the arrow keys, the cursor yeah, keys, yeah. and do things, and you can filter it nicely and sort it by tree or list view. And but yeah, the, the useful thing is a quick glance shows your CPU utilization by way of nicely coloured bars and also memory utilization. Yeah, and I guess we should see how you get these things, or if they're standard. This is something that isn't standard in most Linux distributions or on the Mac, but you can usually get it in the package manager. It's in apt on. Um, Ubuntu is in homebrew on the Mac that sort of thing so it's easy to get and maybe of interest of specialist interest only the way that it reports CPU usage may or may not be lying to you if you're not on an x86 architecture so take it with a pinch of salt but that's that's well that's pretty specialist but we've been talking about yeah. ARM servers so there's maybe relevant specialist information um, yeah. and then I don't know if you've read this uh, this blog before that by on this uh, page uh, peteris.rocks yeah I think I have seen this before I think we've discussed this privately before yeah but this this is so this this, this article is brilliant if you understand htop this is someone who's decided to try and understand htop by writing a blog post explaining everything you see on the screen absolutely everything yeah, so, so they've I think that I think this blog post is better than the man page for htop yes it goes into better. so much detail I mean they literally yeah. take a blank Ubuntu 16.04 server machine, run htop, and they explain every single piece of text you see on the screen. It's really yeah. brilliant. Even if you think you know htop, you're listening to this going, I know htop, I use it all the time, read this, you'll learn something new. Okay, so I guess I'll, I'll go with my first tick. It is GNU Parallel, and you've got a link to a book on it in here. Um, yeah, it's a 120-page book about new Parallel. It's awesome. It's really awesome. <laughs> it deserves more than that. Let me... Have you used it before? Do you know what it is? Yeah, I have, yeah. Okay, so I'll, I'll kind of explain what it is. You can Google and find um, some nice some nice examples of it. Uh, but what GNU Parallel does is it is it's kind of like a task manager. I'll put in a link to the best explanation I've seen of it. So I've got a really simple explanation for it. 
which is if you use xargs, which lets you pipe arguments into other commands. New parallel is like xargs, but for multiple processes. Or rather, it's it's like a for loop, only it'll run everything in parallel while it can. So yeah. say you've got four yeah. CPUs and you've got eight thing, nine things you want to run in a row, it will loop over them and it'll execute. And as one finishes, it'll run the next one. So it does it does it does smart scheduling, right? So if you look at the link I just pasted in, you'll see a nice graph where they explain it. So they keep, it'll keep all the cores busy, or as many as you want. Um, and it's basically anywhere you might, if you think of it as anywhere you might re- replace a, a for loop. So if you write for, you know, for i in some number, do do something to a file, say. Yeah, most shells support that. So. Write it as a, a parallel command, and it'll do them all in parallel. And it yep. does much cleverer stuff than that as well. So it supports... Um, variables and things like that so for example you want to search across a range of parameters you want to try out a different you know different settings on something so you've got some some little command line application and it's got different options you might want to tweak and you want to see which is best you can do a new parallel say run it with these range of options and it'll just go away and run that all in parallel and when it's done you know you get all the results it's data parallelism mostly it's what you use this for um but even better than that um, I don't know if you used it for this as well. That scheduling across cores works across CPUs as well. If you've got your SSH key set up, you can have it, you know, with nearly the same syntax. Do you mean across different machines? Yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah in the same way it splits across cores. Yeah. And you can make it shuffle, like you can make it shuffle and run things in random orders as well. So if you're scheduling experiments with it, you can randomize things, which can be helpful. It really, it really is awesome, and it's a really, I'd say, it really comes into its own if you have. Where I mostly use it for is simple tasks, which can be uh, data parallel, as in lots of different bits of data you're doing the same thing to. And yeah. you've got a, a very many cord machine. So on a quad core laptop, yeah, maybe it helps a bit, but it's when you it's when you've got you know 40, 80 threads on a a big Xeon box or something, then it really comes into it, into its own. You can absolutely smash through some image processing tasks and things like this. Yeah, I mean, it's this is a, I use it for um, processing images if we've got. If you've changed the way images look, or you're wanting all the images the same size, or just something simple, and you just run run the, run the task of parallel on a big box, and it gets done pretty quickly. Yeah, and you don't have to think about it too much either. It's all yeah. I mean, it's also like if you look at the example in post, it's it's quicker than writing a for loop, <laughs> even if yeah. you're just running on one thing. It's a simpler command, um, just a pile of colons and loops over a shell expression, for example. You always find the colons thing a bit weird. It is a bit weird, yeah. but it makes sense if you yeah. read how you can control the loops in different. So yeah, it's super nice. And in terms of why it's useful, is I took a task which was taking 40 minutes on a fast quad core laptop, ran it, minimal changes to the script, just literally two lines of GNU parallel stuff in the bash script, and it ran in 30 seconds on a like 80 core machine. Nice. And the nice thing there is, is when you have a nice data parallel job like that, that you have enough I.O. to feed it, because that then becomes a problem, right? You need fast SSDs. You can get enormous speedups. Enormous speedups. It really change the way you work from a, you know, I'm going to have to plan this into my data. I can just run it and see what happens. And that's so. Yeah. That's why I love GNU Parallel. And the scheduling across machines thing is cool as well, if you need to get into that. Yeah. Um, really yeah. easy way to run stuff in a cluster. Uh, so what's your next choice? So my next choice is actually, it's a Python module, but it's really accessible, and I'll explain how in a second. It's called Simple HTTP Server. And if you type in a terminal, go any directory, type Python space, hyphen M space, and then Simple HTTP Server, it's, um, what do you call it, camel case with all capitals for HTTP. It will start a, 
a web server, and I think it's port 8000. That'll tell you what port it's on, um, but in that directory, and then you can just access the stuff in that directory from the browser, like a normal web server. Mm. You can just start it up anyway. Only if you're on Python 2. I think it's in Python. I think it's in both. No, no, it Python 3, it's you type HTTP.server instead. Ah, I wondered why you put that note yeah, in. I yeah, thought yeah. it was going to be. I thought it was going to be some sort of horrific MATLAB thing. It's not. No, it's a horrific Python thing. Um, <laughs> okay, I didn't know about HTTP server. That's good to know because I know that. Um, yeah, yeah, a couple of Linux distributions are going to change to using Python three pretty soon. And the, the big difference in Python two versus three, or uh, the big difference answers on a postcard, please. But yeah. um, string handling is the main. Is where there yeah. are significant differences. So, and there's a lot of string handling goes on in serving web stuff. So. Yeah, it's just it's just one of these things. I mean, it's like there's almost not much to talk about. It just it's so simple. It just works. But if you do what I do, it's really handy. Yeah, I mean, especially you want a web, you want to serve a, web, a little test web server in any directory on nearly any computer. Will already have some yeah. sort of Python on it. Then you can get one, yeah. either a simple HTTP yeah. server or HTTP dot server. Yeah. Um, so yeah, good choice. So I think our ne- my next pick is the same as your next pick, kind of. Yeah. And that is any sort of terminal multiplexer. So my favoured one is Tmux, and you've also listed Screen, which is a bit more yeah, so, old school. Yeah, so I think like Screen is just the one I know really, really well, like ridiculously well. It's one of those ones where at some point I read the man pages and learned all the weird stuff. Almost all the guys I work with use Tmux, and some of them are like really hardcore like Tmux users in, in, in the same way as I am with Screen. They really know all the stuff, and it's really interesting to speak to them. But I think it's less like maybe it's go and learn one of these but definitely learn some sort of terminal multiplexer because it makes your life so much easier when you're dealing with remote stuff or even local stuff yeah so there's also BioBoo which is like a slightly fancy Tmux but so to explain what we mean by terminal multiplexer it's you're in a terminal you type Tmux it kind of changes slightly what you see but it lets you effectively within that terminal create windows um, it lets you detach from the session reattach to the same session so like this is a big use case for me you SSH into something you start Tmux and then if you lose the SSH connection, you can connect again, reattach to Tmux, the Tmux session, and see everything that was running is still running. Yeah. Um, and the nice things that Tmux does compared to Screen is it's much better for handling multiple panes. So if you want to split a terminal vertically or horizontally or a combination of the above, you can do that very easily. Um, if you think side by side windows, but in the same terminal sort of thing. Yeah, uh, which is nice, and Tmux also supports concurrent connections into the same session. Yeah, which if you ever need to do any pair programming or you're on a call with someone and you're trawling through server logs, that's a classic I've done trying to debug something. Then it's really nice that you can both you know dive on the same session and be both like looking at the same thing when you're trying to really fix something quickly or something. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I use like screen mostly for is like I've got like a long running task to run on a server, like uh, you know SSH in, get, make a screen session, start running a task, exit out, and go and do something else for a few hours. Um, you've actually, I'm going to skip ahead. You've, you've listed I notify wait in here. Oh yeah, brilliant. Which is like um, it's a tool that basically waits for some event to happen, and then can you can do other stuff once it's happened. Changes in the file like, system mostly. It's an efficient way of monitoring changes in the file system. Yes, I saw someone had a nice um, script the other day. I'll see if I can find it and put it in the show notes where it will 
have like a Mac OS notification, one of the things that pops up in the top right and annoys you, like um, when a script, a long running script finishes in um, your shell. Yeah, the other pro tip I'd say for Tmux or any other terminal multiplexer is if you're using like prompt or something on iOS and you're SSHing into something, you're way more likely to lose your SSH connection because you multitask out of it and it drops out of memory and goes or whatever. At yeah. which point being inside the multiplexer reattaching to your sessions a lifesaver. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I would almost say if you're SSHing into servers, like just assume the connection is unreliable. Don't run anything that's long running without it being in some sort of like Tmux or screen. Yeah, or I mean, I'm I'm using robotic systems, and it goes doubly so for that because there's all kinds of more reasons you might lose connections. Yeah. Um, and then I guess a word of warning is beware, beware. Kind of a you can get into kind of a multiplexer inception. Yeah. <laughs> if you know what I mean, where you don't quite know where you are if you're in the real world yet. If anyone's seen that film, so like um, my problem was. I was SSH'd into a server where I was running Tmux and inside that I had an interactive Docker session inside that I was running Screen uh, to avoid the hotkeys clashing and then doing stuff inside that and then you're kind of like, hmm, where am I typing stuff? Yeah, um, yeah, you're you're right. It can definitely become a bit confusing at times. Anyway, so on to, I guess it's, that was technically your pick. So if I, if I go into my next yep. one, my next two kind of... Um, fall under the same kind of category because they kind of I'll, I'll pick them both as one so there's one command line app here but it's really combined with some other things you can do in the command line so it's uh gnu plot gnu plot or specifically a selection of i think it's a script that wraps it called feed gnu plot which okay. lets you stream from standard input into gnu plot so you can get a live updated graph on your screen yeah yep. from some text input but where this really comes into its own is with SSH, uh, a bit of tailing, and uh, the knowledge that you can turn off buffering on awk with a dash W interactive, um, yep. or specifically mawk, which is the default on Ubuntu systems. So what this means is you can write a script that's purely local, purely on your machine, and what it does is it runs some sort of tailing command on something on a remote server via SSH, feeding that into GNU plot. So you get a live updating graph on your screen from some information that you're stripping out of something on another machine somewhere else. Yeah. That makes sense? So to give yep. like a kind of use, my second thing here I put here, because it made me remember this, um, getting nasty in the scissor proc trees, which is if anyone's not familiar with this, in any Unix system you can go to slash sys to find out things about the system basically. Um or slash proc to find out things about running processes. So as an example, um, if you go into slash sys slash bus on a Ubuntu system, then you can see all the buses in the system. You can uh, then, for example, look into USB slash USB slash devices, see what devices are connected to which USB bus. Um, you know, you can monitor for things being connected and disconnected. In the CPU information there, you can see, you know, Temperatures log in here, usages, power governors, etc. So you can imagine, say, you're monitoring CPU loader temperature on some server, but you could be doing that remotely with SSH. You could be tailing it. You could be then selecting the bit of information you want out of it using MOC with dash W interactive, and then that's feeding into GNU plot, and then you've got this live graph of your remote server's temperature, for example. Yep. Um, really cool way of just lashing up a quick dashboard for something that's running on yeah, a remote so system without requiring anything really unusual in the remote system, which is the nice thing. Yep. So the, the times I've used this is when I've it has been demanded that we have some sort of nice graphs or something we can show people, 
and it's like like a presentation or something and I'm like uh, I could tail the logs and look for stuff and then use new plot and I'm like that's fine yeah and the, the, the nice thing here is knowing that feed new plot exists which lets you run it on live data so the graph live updates yeah it's like tail for new plot yeah uh, and then the fact that you need dash w interactive on on awk to make it not buffer if you're a parsing through logs and then the fact that you can do this all remotely as well it's really cool i think and then the sysproc tree in general system proc trees are super interesting depending on your system some embedded systems have some really exciting stuff in there um and in general if you want to have a look around there just uh, ls your way around the place and cat things and see what they've got and um procedure caution but you can echo stuff into a lot of those files and change things about the system like for example cpu governors and things like this yeah and clock, speed, clock speeds on relatively open systems as well. That's a way you can adjust clock speeds and voltages. Um, so what have you got next then? I guess I guess, I guess this is kind of my last thing. Um, so it's like S-trace, D-trace, D-troughs. It depends what system you're on, what it's called, and what the actual features of it are. But this is just like a tracing tool. And the use case I would have for it is like if a process is misbehaving, say a, a um, server process is starting up and then dying pretty quickly, I can just point one of these tools at it, see what files it's open opening and um, see what you know ports it has hold of that sort of thing and see when it's dying and usually from that you can sort of work backwards and figure out why it's dying um i will put in the show notes an amazing talk um by um brendan greg perhaps no no no, no. no. Oh, for, he's I've got loads of cool right. stuff on this yeah he's got loads of cool stuff on this let's get that in it's james gollick uh, it's called how to debug anything by james gollick and he basically walks you through how to do exactly this sort of thing with it it's, it's another one of those tools like you learn it once and then you find like a, a ton of ways to it's a bit it. like um lsof i guess um yeah yeah, handy. yeah you're, I mean, you, in this case you're looking you're literally looking at system calls mm. like the application what the application's asking the operating system to do for it. yeah um i guess my last one is just to give it even i'll skip one ad in there it's not so much a utility as just a general tip that'll change your life if you didn't know this which is reverse history search in bash or most shells uh, the fact that you can type control r and then start typing and it searches your bash history for yep. the nearest match so rather than pressing up and looking for that thing you knew you typed recently but you can't remember exactly you can do you know control r and search for it which is really cool. Yeah, so like I use Fish Shell locally. I don't use it on Ubuntu because it behaves weirdly on Ubuntu in an SSH connection, uh, but that's what I use locally. And it has a thing where it, you can type part of a command and then press up, and it will find the nearest match for that string. Oh, so it's just, yeah, the same thing, basically. Just same idea, yeah, yeah. Invoking it. And the other ones are Control-A and Control-E for skipping to the start and end of a line, which amazes me how many people don't know you can do that. It's just um, when you're editing commands, so you're doing Control-R to find something... You know, for, so a really common one for me would be control R, start typing SSH to start cycling through previous SSH commands, find the server I want, control A or control E to maybe skip to the start of the end of the line, slightly modify a command and then send it off again. Yep. So it's just a, it's really neat. It's like, if I had one sort of trick for anyone using terminals a lot, that would be, that's what it would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd agree that's a that's a great tip because it, it's kind of frustrating to watch people like just hold holding the cursor. Oh, so like it's like right. If anyone's wondering why I'm on about this and why it's so great and they've not used reverse shell search before, right? Just think of this. You know when you're visiting, I don't know. I don't want to. I'm going to stereotype. Parents are older relatives and they're googling something and you're saying, "Oh, just look this up on your computer." And they go to Google something. And they type in the search term, and then they no. First of all, no. First of all, they get the mouse. They click on the browser yes, icon. Yes. They go to file. They do new but tab. the specific they, they go to the, the search bar. Yeah. They type in Google.com, and then they click search with the mouse. 
That's the thing. Is yeah. it's when someone types in a search term and clicks search for the mouse rather than hitting return. That's the equivalent. If you know reverse shell search, when you see someone start going up, or worse, when you see someone starting to type in a command and you know they must have a similar command in their history, but they're typing mm. it all in again because that's just error prone. If you've done it right before, do it right again. Yeah, I mean, this is like we're kind of half joking and being a little bit snobby about it but these things can save you so much time if this is what you do every day and just errors right if you're typing in a long command to connect to a server and you got it right last time then why why risk typing the wrong thing again yeah you might accidentally type rm space hyphen rf <laughs> yeah. you know. anyway thanks for listening to Pinkout. Uh we put the show notes online at pinkoutpodcast.com we'll have uh, links to all these utilities and things there you can find me on twitter at the underscore accidental and you can find Doug at Douglas F. Shearer you can follow the show at Pincount Podcast. We love to get feedback, so do tweet us, or you can use the hashtag AskPincount, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or if you really want to send us some longer feedback, then please do email us. We're at wrongontheinternet at pincountpodcast.com. Okay, I'm going to click this thing that you're saying not to click. Oh, no, no, wait, wait, wait. Do the IBM 5 and 5 thing first. <sighs> okay. This is, this is a list from IBM of what they think is going to be vaporware. Well, vaporware, or they think... I think they've been serious about it, but I think these are almost all things that are going to be vaporware, except one of them. So what? Except one of them, so I have to guess, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> crypto anchors and blockchain will unite against counterfeiters. Hackers going to hack until they encounter lattice cryptography. Her oceans are dirty. AI-powered robot microscopes may save them. Well, I put AI-powered things in the ocean, so I'm going to have to be uh, in favour of okay, that one. Keep going. Um AI bias will explode, but only the unbiased AI will survive. That's a dramatic way of talking about bias in AI, which is a real and serious issue. Yeah, we've um, talked about it before. Quantum computing will be mainstream. Hmm. So I agree quantum computing will be mainstream. I think AI bias is an important thing that needs to be rooted out. Um, I think yeah, so AI bias is the thing. I think that's like a real issue. The, maybe the AI-powered robot microscopes might be, you know, well, on, but maybe, maybe for the, not the next five years. Quantum computing, five but, years? No, nah, I don't think so. They've been saying it's going to be five years for like 20 years. So Anything that I see blockchain and I'm like, really? Really? <laughs> yeah, I know. And the lattice cryptography one, that's just like, it's, it's a like a data stru- a cryptographic data structure that you can then hide information in. So I don't really know enough about that to say, but I just thought this was a really weird marketing thing from IBM. I just clicked on it and scrolled down to the IBM X-Force or possibly Cross-Force command center. I'm wondering, why are they all on Mac? Um, well, IBM don't make computers anymore, yeah. so... Oh, yeah, I've just seen this picture. Yeah, it's, it's very strange. What are they doing? I don't know. They look trapped. They've got graphs on the wall. It must be serious. And a map of the world with time zones. They're behind glass. They're trapped. Mm. Yeah, interesting setup they've got there. Okay, yeah, can they're... I clip this thing that says Crab Simulator do not look? <laughs> you can click, yes. Okay. So you can watch the start of it and then I'll give you some timestamps to skip to or one timestamp. Okay, so what I'm looking at here appears to be it's got something which might be Japanese. Looks like Japanese it's to me. Japanese, yeah, it's Tanji um, And it appears to be a pair of 3D crabs fighting with swords. Yeah, it's a computer game. Okay, yeah, okay, I should add this computer game, yeah. That's important. <laughs> and then I'm kind of skipping. And is this like- so the, the next important point to skip to is like one minute or just before one minute just before one minute okay <laughs> I go and right I've skipped to 57 seconds okay so it's two crabs <laughs> one's got a morning star it's like a big spiky ball attached to a chain yep <laughs> another one's got like a sword another sword a dagger another sword is spinning around 
<laughs> it's got pistols, revolvers. Yeah, it's got revolvers. So, so, so it appears to be a crab fighting computer games, but the crabs have weapons. <laughs> so, what 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 platforms is on when we're we playing it? <laughs> so, so, so I think this is like a, a goat simulator situation, but it was just made as like a mock up. But like Reddit and a few other places have gone absolutely wild for it, and now, so they might actually make it sort of as a joke. Because there's one within the city, right? We need to find this and possibly get into Twitch live streaming. Yeah, it's just nonsense. Oh yeah, I've just seen the city one. I hadn't seen that before. Yeah, it's very strange. That's pretty good. 